And so the Son of Man goes, and notice it says there in verse 22, as it has been determined, as it has been determined. And we might say, from eternity, it has been determined that the Son of Man will go and go on to make atonement for the sin of the world. We're going to see coming up a little bit later also how, again, this has always been God's plan. And it's exactly why Jesus came into this world that has it has been determined, and we would say, by the Father from the beginning of time. Okay, we've got a question here. Let me get over. Can you explain to me, if it's always been determined since the beginning of time, uh-huh. how Judas had free will to betray Jesus? Okay. All right, so... God has determined it, and in fact, Judas, you remember, uh, I think it was last week, you guys had the the verse where Satan enters Judas, and Judas, we think, no longer a believer at that point, was actually working as an agent of Satan. God allows this to happen, but it is his plan, nonetheless. And we're going to see also how Peter is going to be tempted and is going to fall. And Jesus is even going to say, Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you out, and I'll be praying for you. So God allows these things to happen, and in this case, Judas is doing something that is, in terms of the overall ministry of Jesus, is actually bringing about what God sent Jesus to do. It's kind of a complex thing when you think about it, that Satan, or um, Judas is actually carrying out the will of Satan in a sense of of killing Jesus, but in so doing, is doing God's plan. So it's kind of, and you get the same thing uh, when we get into the, you know, the trial that we're going to maybe get to today, and the, uh, even going on then to Pilate and to Herod and so on, and all these people are, I don't say pawns, but they are, in doing what they do, they are carrying out God's plan. Okay? All right, we've got a couple more questions. At least one more question. I always understood that it was God's plan that Jesus would have to suffer and die for us. Right, right. But was it God's plan that Judas had to be an instrument of the devil, or that that's just how it played out? I think that's that's how it played out. Um, I'm trying to think if we have a verse that identifies Judas. I don't think we have one that identifies him before he does the betrayal. We certainly do afterward. He's always identified as the one who betrayed Jesus. Right. I mean, yeah. he did betray Jesus. Right. That was, I mean, his own choice. That it was, de- that yeah. agreed to get the money. And right. I'm, I'm not aware of a verse that, sa- that says Judas was destined to be the one right. to do it, or was, was assigned the responsibility to do it. Okay, pass the mic, Mr. Storer. Uh, and I understand the word determined um, is, is there, and we know from Scripture that it would be, it would be understandable, that this would be just a fulfillment. But mm-hmm. does the original, does the Greek imply that the word determined in its Greek form, does it, deter, it, does it explain it was always from salvation to happen? Yes. Because I know understanding... The Greek or the Hebrew makes a difference in, in the richness of our understanding. I yeah. understand that. Yeah. So the having been determined, we would say, is an act that took place on the part of God. He determined, 
a one-time act that has ongoing manifest, uh, implications. He determined before the foundation of the world that the Son of Man would come and would uh, offer his life as a ransom for many. Yes, it's a one it's a one-time action that has ongoing implications. Okay? All right. All right, we made it through half a verse. <laughs> that's all right. If you have questions, that's what we want to do. So, and what I'll do is I think I'll stop at the end of a section. Why don't we do it that way? I'll stop at the end of a section and ask if there are any questions or comments. That way we can at least make it through and kind of get the thing as a whole. Okay? Now, um, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Um, and, you know, Jesus has already pronounced woes to the religious leaders of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders, and Judas is now in cahoots with them, isn't he? He's going to be doing their will. He's going to be getting rid of Jesus, uh, they think, uh, and is in with them, okay? Uh, and notice there, the disciples are shocked, aren't they? They begin questioning amongst themselves. You know, is it uh, the other, one of the other gospels, they're, they're asking, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And um, we have, and it's kind of confusing, in another gospel, we have Jesus actually saying, it's the one who dips into the bowl with me. And we don't know if the other disciples heard that and understood it, but it was definitely Judas dipping into the bowl. So again, we, we kind of think they didn't, they didn't quite hear this or they didn't quite catch it for some reason, but they are perplexed and they are just scared and wondering, is it I? Who's going to do this, Lord? Who could possibly be doing this? Uh, you know, one of us. And I guess one other thing to mention is that Jesus has just begun the Lord's Supper. And if anything... This emphasizes that the Lord's Supper is a meal for sinners, isn't it? We've got Peter there who, before he knows it, is going to deny even knowing Jesus three times. We'll look at that and see how completely, totally solid he is in denying Jesus. And yet he's there at the Supper. And we would say the same thing today, right? That the Lord's Supper is not there for people who think they're perfect, but for sinners who repent of their sin and receive not only the body and blood of Christ, along with the bread and the wine, but also forgiveness for our sins. Matthew 28 talks about for the forgiveness of sin, okay? So in that sense, we have, uh, we have people today, obviously, we are all sinners, and we all come to that table, and you see at the very first, uh, very first Lord's Supper, you might say, in the upper room, it's a meal where all the sinners are around, aren't they? The disciples are going to flee. Uh, Peter is going to deny knowing Jesus three times. He's going to cut off a, the ear of a temple guard. And uh, again, these guys are not there because they're perfect. Uh, far from it. They're there because they are sinners, just as we are. Okay? All right, now let me stop at the end of this section as we're going to move on now. But let me stop and see if we have any questions or comments. So would you say that Judas at that point was an unrepentant sinner? Yes. Taking the Lord's Supper? Yes. It certainly seems that way. Yeah. Satan has already entered into him, and uh, Jesus finally tells him, go and do what you have to do, or go, go do what you will do. Yeah. So yes, and unfortunately we know his, his outcome. Uh, now, great contrast here between Judas and Peter. 
right? Peter repents of his sin. Judas, apparently thinking there's no forgiveness for him, uh, is sorrowful, is contrite, but apparently doesn't believe there's forgiveness for him, goes out and hangs himself. So it's, it's quite sad, isn't it? Okay. Any other questions or comments? All right, let's go on. Uh, moving into another little section here, still on Monday, Thursday evening. Uh, one of the great ironies in the Gospel of Luke is that right after Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and um, you know, uh, talks about somebody's going to betray them, uh, what are the disciples doing? Arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And unfortunately, this isn't the only time that this has happened. Um, I oftentimes wondered, you know, what, uh, you think about it, what were, their, what were they saying, you know? What was Peter saying, for example, as to why he should be the greatest, or James or John? You know, Peter, James, and John were always in the inner circle, it seems. Whenever something big was going to happen, it was Peter, James, and John who were always there. And you got to wonder, it'd be, it'd be really kind of sad, actually, but maybe a little comical, to hear their arguments for themselves, you know, why they should be number one, okay? And then, of course, we had that, remember that incident where the mother of James and John plays into it as well. She comes and asks that uh, when he comes into his kingdom that one of her boys be on his right and one at his left, and there was the, the two uh, head honchos in, in the kingdom. So, I mean, this was an ongoing, it seems, concern uh, with the disciples. And Jesus tries repeatedly to let them know that, no, it's not that way in the kingdom of God. In fact, it's flipped just the opposite, right? That the one who is great in the kingdom of God is the one who serves, right? So with that, let's go. I'm going to read this whole section here, 24 uh, through 30, and then we'll go back and take it apart, and then we'll see if there are any questions or comments. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be, be regarded as the greatest, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, let's go back. So. The dispute arises amongst these disciples again as to which one is the greatest. And as I said, this is unfortunately not the only time this happens. We have it in a number of places. Uh, we have both parallel accounts in, in Matthew 20 and Mark 10. But we've got other times when they were just on the road and they're arguing amongst themselves and so on. So uh, now Jesus noticed in verse 25, he outlines for them the way it works in the world. That the, gen the Gentiles could be thought of as the the pagans or the worldly people, amongst them, they exercise, the leaders, the kings, exercise lordship over their people, okay? So they are seen as the greatest, but not so with you. Notice the stark contrast there. You know, we know the way it works in the world, but not so with you. 
Okay? Rather, but um, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Now let's stop and talk about that for a moment. You might expect that Jesus would say something like, uh, let the one who is greatest among you become as the servant or the one who serves. But here he says youngest. And to kind of in interpret this or to understand this, we have to understand how were children viewed back in Bible times as the ones who always would defer to their elders. Not, not the way it is probably today so much anymore, right? Uh, things that maybe have flipped around a little bit. But the ones who would always give way and defer to the eldest, okay? And frankly, not seen, at, probably, I guess this would be a general statement, not valued as greatly as we value children today. Rabbis would not spend their time with children, for example. Didn't think it was worth their time and energy to do so. And so it's interesting. Jesus, in, in Mark 10, he says, uh, let the one who is greatest, and he uses the word megalos there, where we get mega, where, you know, the greatest, be as the diaconus, the servant, okay? And then in uh, Mark 10, he says, let the one who is the protos, or the first, we use, a, we use that word for prototype, the first type, right? Let him be the uh, doulos, or the servant, or the slave. Here, he uses, let him, it's, it's another word, maidzon, who is great, be as a child, okay? Now, those of you that have a phone or you've got your, your paper Bible, uh, keep your finger here, and let's just go to Luke chapter 9. So just back a ways in Luke, and we'll see a previous time that the disciples were engaged in the same kind of discussion. Okay? So Luke 9, and we're going to look at verse 46, 46 through 48. Luke 9, 46 through 48. Okay? Let me read it. An argument arose among them, the disciples again, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Again, identifying a child who is the one who is the least among them, right? And again, just a, a, a window into the culture of that day and the way children were viewed. So the bottom line is Jesus is again flipping the way of the world. And so often it's that way, that in the kingdom of God, things are exactly flipped the other way. And the disciples just do not seem to be getting it. All right. Now Luke does not have it in his account. But you remember what action did Jesus do in that upper room to try and get this idea across to the disciples? Do you remember what he did, the act he did? Wash their feet. Took a towel and stooped down and washed their feet. An image that you would hope would never leave their minds. That he did this for us. And remember Peter objected that Lord, 
You can't, you shouldn't be washing, I should be washing yours. And so again, Jesus is trying every way possible to get this idea across to them that in the kingdom of God, it is not being served, but serving, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, right? But they're, again, they're just not, it's not sinking in. So verse uh, 27 you know, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Well, in the ways of the world, who's the greater? The one who is reclining at the table, right? Not the one who is serving. That's the way it is in the, in the ways of the world, okay? And it is, it is, is it not the one who reclines at table? Yeah. But I am among you as the one, the one who serves. Now, whether Jesus intended it or not, he uses that I am the one who serves. You recall what I am comes from? God's name. Back in Exodus chapter 3, when the burning bush, God calls Moses, and Moses says, well, okay, when I go to the people and tell them God has sent me, and they ask, what is his name, what should I answer? And God, remember, it's Elohim, I am who I am. And Jesus makes a bunch of I am statements. Now, whether he intended that with this statement or not, we don't know. But, you know, he's, I, am the, I am the light of the world. I am the door. There are plenty of I am statements, especially in the Gospel of John. But notice here he says, I am the one among you, or rather, I am among you as the one who serves. Okay? So in this case, the one who is the greatest, right? The Son of God is the one who is serving, right? And not just those disciples, but all of us. Taking our needs and putting them above his own and going to the cross where he will pay the ultimate sacrifice not only for our sin, but for the sins of the world, okay? He is among us as one who serves, okay? Now, you, he says, you have stayed with me. You are the ones who stayed with me in my trials. What kind of trials has he had? He's been opposed by whom? The religious leaders of the day, right? Who have been dogging him and trying to trap him and trying to, you know, making life tough for him as he goes to the cross. So uh, you've been with me through these trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom. Well, gee, what kind of kingdom is that going to be? Is that going to be a political kingdom with boundaries here on earth, physical boundaries here on earth, that you may eat and drink, oh, at my table? Hmm, where is this table going to be? Table is a banquet, right? We normally think of a table as a banquet. And so we think this is a reference to the eschatological banquet to come in life and the world to come. And notice there, uh, they're, they're worried about being great. And what's Jesus, in effect, telling them? Hey, you're going to be at the table, right? You're going to be at the banquet table. And uh, so just be concerned about serving here. Don't worry. Your day is going to come. He's going to assign them a kingdom. And notice they're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the judging does not mean on judgment day. Remember the judges in the Old Testament, what did they do? They were leaders of God's people. 
in the book of Judges, there's a pattern that goes on there, and God sends them a judge or sends them a leader, okay? So you're going to be actually leading or over, governing over, you might say, the 12 tribes of Israel. And we think this is not a literal reference to the 12 tribes in the Old Testament, obviously, but the entire church in heaven, those who by faith are children of Abraham. So he is assuring them. It's kind of interesting when you think about it. They just had this meal in which he transformed it into a new meal for them, and he directs their attention to a meal yet to come, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, which has no end, and says, don't worry, you're going to be there, and you're going to be judging or ruling. You're going to be leading, in other words, we would say, the church, the true church in heaven. So by that last part, he's kind of trying to you know, soften their, uh, their thinking that, oh, gee, this is what it's about? We thought it was about being uh, powerful and authoritative. Well, don't worry. Your day is going to come. But here, it's about serving. It's about service, serving one another. Okay? All right, let me stop there. Do we have any questions, comments before we move on? We're going to get to Peter's denial or prediction of his denial. All right, let's go on. Uh, so let's look, whoops. let's look at verse 31. Kind of a troubling, uh, in some ways, troubling verse. Simon, Simon, this is Jesus talking. Satan, has, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, kind of, let's just stop there for a moment. Kind of, as I say, maybe a little disconcerting or a little troubling, Satan has demanded to have you. Now, would Satan be able to have him without God's okie-dokie, so to speak? No. And so God is going to allow this to happen. And again, it's serving his greater purpose. Where do we see this kind of almost exact same thing in the Old Testament, Job, yes, yet Satan has to ask permission, and God is the one who sets the boundaries, okay? So Satan has demanded to have you, or, or in order to sift you, so you think of sifting flour, that it's all just, you know, blowing around, so it's a way of thinking of, of breaking Peter down, right? And we know this is going to work, but notice there, uh, he is temp, he is, um, uh, praying for him that your faith may not fail. And notice there, what is Jesus predicting when he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What is Jesus predicting is going to happen there with Peter eventually? Yeah, well, uh, he's going to turn. We normally think of turning as repentance, right? He's going to turn. When you do, Jesus doesn't say, if you do, but when you do, turn, and then what's his instruction? Strengthen your brothers, the plural, brothers. So who would be these brothers that Peter is supposed to strengthen? Disciples, yeah. So here we get a prediction that it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you know, Satan is asked to sift you, I'm going to be praying for you, and when you do finally turn, 
So in, in, a, in an essence, Jesus is saying, you're, you're going to be sifted. In fact, he's going to tell them exactly how coming up here. You are going to be sifted. You are, he's going to tell them, you will deny me. And when you have turned, when you have returned, uh, strengthen my brothers. And Peter, of course, eventually, in the book of Acts, especially the first portion of the book of Acts, uh, is a tremendous leader uh, in the church. And, um, you know, well, really into the, into the uh, uh, letter, uh, middle part of the book of Acts. So he is going to function that way. Um, now, notice Peter's uh, statement here in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. So pretty confident here, isn't he? Lord, I'm ready to go. Let's go. I'm right with you. And uh, we're going to go if we need to go to prison. We'll do that, and even to death. Now, kind of interesting. We know the rest of the story, right, as Paul Harvey used to say, uh, what's going to come up here. But just stop and think that eventually Peter's going to be doing exactly that, isn't he? Eventually he is going to be put into prison. Eventually he is going to be martyred. Uh, he's going to be put to death because of his faith rather than deny Jesus. So he's thinking here in the short term, Lord, let's go, I'm ready, even to die with you. But in another sense, he will eventually do that, right? He will eventually do exactly that. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny, me, deny three times that you know me. And that's just coming up. So Jesus makes that prediction. In other words, Peter... You're thinking you're so brave and you're so confident in yourself. This is what's going to happen. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Okay? What do you think's going through Peter's mind at that point? No way. No way, Lord. I'm not going to do that, right? And we're going to see, sadly, that that's exactly what is going to happen. All right, let me stop there and see if there are any questions. Okay? The study Bible draws um, a difference between the use of you in the yes. plural sense and you in the singular sense. And I, mm -hmm. Maybe you would have gotten to that, I don't know. But I, I think it's also an illustration of discipleship because at this point, Peter is saying, Lord, I am ready to go with you. Mm -hmm. But sometimes in our faith life, we feel very alone. Yes. And he's not getting that. And the Lord has to instruct him, you're not going to be with me. Mm -hmm. You're going to be doing this alone. Right. Yeah, good point. And there, there is a good application, isn't there, to, to us and our everyday following of Jesus. That there are days, in fact, I mentioned this last Sunday in the sermon, there are days where we feel so confident, right, that we are with the Lord and this is going to be a great day and, and we're, we're going to be just like that with the Lord. And then something happens and all of a sudden, oh. You know, it's like... Uh, listen again, for those of you that are, haven't been in worship yet today or going to later service, Romans 7, where Paul lays out, it's not the good that I want to do, it's the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing, right? And again, uh, same thing here, Peter is probably thinking there is no way that this is going to happen, that I'm going to deny you, and unfortunately it is going to happen, we're going to see it happen, Yes. Any other, uh, yes, let me get back here. I get my exercise this way. It, 
I mean, it seems unfortunate that he's going to do it, but that's going to strengthen his faith in a way that it couldn't have been strengthened to prepare him for his future ministry right. because Jesus is going to be able to personally forgive him right. for that. Right, right, yes. Yes, so this is, and this, again, we could draw a parallel, couldn't we, to uh, our own lives. When we think about our own sins and being restored once again, right? Being uh, repentant and being restored once again by the words of absolution. You know, the forgiveness that we receive in total from God. So you're right. I mean, it is, you see a, a, almost a training or a development happening here. The other thing we've got to say on the other side is that it shows, doesn't it, that uh, what Paul was, Paul's words, let he who is uh, confident be careful lest he fall, right? And we got to be careful we don't spiritually get so overconfident that we think, well, I got nothing to worry about. You know, and again, I'm not trying to make anybody insecure in their, in their salvation, but we got to be careful we don't get overconfident and take for granted that we don't have a need to be dependent upon our Lord for each and every day, right? In our, in our walk with Christ. Okay? Anything else before we move on? All right, let's go on. Uh, verse uh, 35. Uh, and he, Jesus, said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Now he's referring her here to the sending out of the disciples uh, on a missionary trip, missionary journey. And uh, this is back in Luke 9 and in Luke 10. And he sends them out, and it sounds like he's almost telling them, you know, not, not to be prepared. Don't take any uh, money sack or anything with you. In other words, who's going to provide for them on this trip? God is. Jesus is, right? And he says, you know, when I sent you out before, did you lack anything? And their response is no. You know, they said nothing. But now listen how things are going to change. He said to them, but now... Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So what, what do you see happening here? There's going to be a change, isn't there? Whereas before they go out and there's goodwill and they're going out and preaching Jesus and it doesn't seem like they're in any, any direct physical danger, but now things are going to change and take provisions. Those provisions, of course, came from God in the first place anyway. But notice the thing here. Take a, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak, sell your outer garment and go and get one. So what's he in effect tipping them off to? Things, yeah, things are changing now and there is going to be open and outright hostility. Um, Jesus will tell them in another spot, they will hate you because they hated me, right? And so, but just stop and think about this for a moment. Jesus tells them this, and then about the sword, go and get a sword, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, what happens with a sword? Peter's going to lop off the ear of Malchus, the temple guard, and what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. Right? So put yourself in the place of these disciples. He just told them, go and sell your cloak and get a sword. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's rebuking them for using a sword. Right? So I say that it's often easy for us to look back 
and say to these, all of these disciples, couldn't they get it? Well, put yourself in their shoes, right? He's just told them that, and they're just, they're just in a whirlwind about what's going on, right? They just don't seem um, to be able to, to, to get it here. And you can understand uh, they're being a little confused when these things take place in this way, okay? Um, verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And what's that scripture? And he was numbered with the transgressors. Notice there is a divine necessity, if you will, that this scripture be fulfilled. He says it must be fulfilled, and not just in anybody, but in me. Now this is a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 12. Uh, we won't take the time to do it now, but when you read Isaiah 53, it's almost like Isaiah is standing there describing what is going to happen to Jesus. And he's doing it 700 years before Jesus even walked this earth. That's where we get, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole. That's all from Isaiah 53, right? One of the so-called servant psalms, songs, S-O-N-G's, in the book of Isaiah that all point ahead to Jesus. And notice Jesus is saying, this is, has to be, it, it, it must be fulfilled in me. Why? Again, it's God's plan, isn't it? This is God's plan. And so if anybody ever says something like, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. He never claimed to be the one that was going to be coming. No, it must be fulfilled in me. And he's pointing to Isaiah 53, 12. I mean, I don't know how much clearer uh, he could be in saying, I am the one, and it's going to be fulfilled in me. Okay? And he said to them, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, skip this portion here. He was number, uh, yeah. And another one, uh, he was number with the transgressors, for what, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. In other words, the Old Testament prophecy. Notice he says it's written about him again, right? Pointing to him. Has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So they point out that here's a couple swords, Lord. And he says, let's go. You know, in other words, this, this is it. Now, again, think of yourself as the disciples. He has told them, go sell a cloak and buy a sword. And at the very end here, hey, Lord, here's two swords right here. And he never responds except says, that's enough. That's it, okay? So you wonder, the disciples have these couple of swords there. Are they anticipating that there's gonna be trouble? Probably so, because they point out, Lord, we've got two swords right here with us, okay? And so they are probably anticipating there's gonna be trouble ahead, okay? He says, that's enough, okay? Um, all right, let's stop there. There are a couple other places it's going to show you in, in Luke 24 where, again, we've got this divine necessity that these things must happen. And again, it's not only because God has predicted it, now we've got to make it happen. No, it is God's plan. He predicted it, and it's going to happen because it is God's plan. He predicted it and lets them know. All right, let's stop here then. We're going to go into Jesus praying on the Mount of Olives. But any questions or comments 
on this section uh, where things, Jesus lets them know very candidly that things are going to turn. Anything? All right, let's go to Jesus praying on the, on the Mount of Olives. It's interesting that uh, Luke never talks about the Garden of Gethsemane, never, never mentions it. But um, for those of you, I know there are a few of you in the room that have been there with us uh, on a tour, that it's not a long ways from Jerusalem, a city, to the Mount of Olives, and then to the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, uh, you can walk it in about 20 to 30 minutes. Not real, in fact, when we're there, we come down. <laughs> we just walk down uh, from the Garden of Gethsemane into Jerusalem. So it's not a long ways, okay? But he's going to leave the upper room now on that note and is going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? And we all know what's going to be happening there. But let's, let's go uh, here. Uh, and he came out, verse uh, 39, I'm sorry, verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. So let's stop there for a moment. Earlier on in Luke 21, Luke lets us know that here was the pattern for Jesus during Holy Week. He came during the day and taught in the temple, and at night went and stayed up on the Mount of Olives. We don't know exactly where, whether it was actually in that garden. It would seem like that's the case. But as was his pattern, okay? So how does, how does Judas know where he might find Jesus? That was the pattern, wasn't it? That he would come and teach in the temple and then go to the Mount of Olives in the evening, okay? And that's, of course, what happened on Monday, Thursday as well. Um, and the disciples followed him. So Jesus and the disciples go out. And, of course, Judas has already gone. He's already left. Luke doesn't record this, um, but we surmise he's already gone. And when he came to the place, again, it seems like there's a place that he went to uh, repeatedly, not just wandered around up on, on the Mount of Olives, but went to a particular place. He said to them, pray that you, now this is plural, you, may not enter into temptation. Uh, now, let's just stop for a moment. What temptation might the disciples be entering into, especially when you think about what they are going to witness in the coming hours? What might they be tempted to do? Deny him, yes. Uh, forsake him, leave him, abandon him, right? And pray that you may not fall into temptation, okay? And then notice there, he, Jesus, withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Yours be done. Okay? Let's stop there. That is quite a prayer, isn't it? Uh, so what is Jesus actually saying here? If it be your will, what does he mean by remove this cup from me? Is he talking about a physical cup that Jesus had in his hands here? And no. The, what is going to come? The suffering, the the wrath of God being meted out on him, if it's possible, if it be, uh, notice he says there, if you are willing, 
remove this cup from me. So as he prays this prayer, what is uppermost in his mind? The will of God, right? If you are willing. Now, here we see Jesus really demonstrating that he is not only true God, but he is also true man. 100% God, 100% man at the same time. He is looking ahead to the incredible torment that he is going to go through. Um, not only the flogging and the whipping, but of course the crucifixion itself. And I won't go into great details, but it was the most excruciating and the most humiliating way that people were put to death at that time. And it was meant to be a public deterrent to other potential criminals. That's why over the top of the cross, they would put the charge against the person that's hanging up there, right? And remember, with Jesus, uh, Pilate puts up there the king of the Jews, and remember the chief priests, scribes, and elders are all upset. Don't say king of the Jews, say he said I am the king of the Jews, right? But it was meant to be a public deterrent, so that if you were thinking about committing that same crime, what was the message to you when you walked by? And it was, it was done on, on busy, you can't imagine this. It'd be like out here on Manchester, we'd be crucifying people. Uh, what, was the, what was the message? If you're thinking about doing this, that could be you up there, so you better think twice, right? That's what it was meant to do. And crucifixion was reserved for those that, you know, Pilate couldn't see how Jesus possibly deserved to be crucified, right? And that's a whole different story that, that we'll get into. But uh, he is thinking ahead now to what is going to be coming. And again, as true God, he knows what is going to be coming. As true man, boy, what one of us as a human being would want to go into that? I mean, it is, it is horrible. It is absolutely horrible. So if you are willing, remove this cup, meaning what's going to come, and notice there the rejoinder, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, does this prayer have anything whatsoever to do with our prayer, our life of prayer, and our prayers? I think so. Some, what, is the upper, what should be uppermost in our mind as we are praying, even in the midst of a bad, bad situation, maybe it's something to come, maybe it's something that has already come into our life, that one line, right? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, that is the, I guess you would say, the bottom line, right, of any prayer that is done in duress by a Christian. Uh, in effect, Lord, your will be done. And sometimes it's really having to conform our own will to the Lord's will, right? Not trying to manipulate God's will, but sometimes we have to conform to God's will. And that's, again, not always an easy thing for us to do. And so Jesus here, this is not a prayer of unbelief. This is not a prayer of uh, rebellion by the Son against the Father, just the opposite. It starts with the will of God. It ends with the will of God. There's a request in the middle. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, it's again the will of God and the will of God, the will of the Father. He has come, remember, not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent me, right? All right, um, 
And there appeared to him, uh, verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Um, I'll just say that uh, if you read a commentary, you'll see that there's not a 100% agreement that verses 43 and 44 should be in the text. There are some of the early manuscripts that don't contain verses 43 and 44, as we have them in our English Bible. Um, I think it, it certainly fits the context, and I don't think there's any reason to discredit them, but just so you know that, there are some people out there that uh, skip through 43 and 44. 45, and he, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. In other words, all that was going to happen, and they're just dismayed, and they just, they just go to sleep. Um, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, the same thing, that you may not be tempted to sin in terms of disowning me and, and forsaking me. Pray that you don't enter into that temptation. Okay? All right, let's stop there. We've got about 10 minutes left. Any questions or comments? We'll get into the actual arrest of Jesus, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Any comments or questions? All right, let's go on. Uh, verse 47. While he was still speaking, so the he is Jesus, he is still speaking. So you get the impression this is an abrupt interruption. He's talking to them, and boom, here comes the arresting party, right? There came, notice it's a crowd. This isn't just a couple guys coming up there. There's a crowd. And the man called Judas, and as if we don't know who this Judas is, Luke says, one of the 12 was leading them, okay? And again, how did he know where Jesus was? Well, it seems like that was Jesus' pattern, as we were saying, to be up on the Mount of Olives in the evening. Um, he was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The complete irony, right, that takes place there. In fact, in the original language, the with a kiss is in the front of the phrase. So with a kiss, would you betray the Son of Man, Judas, is the way it's it's ordered in the Greek, okay? To emphasize the great irony. He is going to betray him or hand him over with an act of affection and fellowship and so on. He's going to use that to actually betray Jesus. And of course, he has signaled the guards that the one he addresses, the one he kisses, is in fact the one that they want. Um, but Jesus, okay, uh, verse 49. And when those who were around him, who would that be? Those who were around him would be the disciples, the other disciples, right? Saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So here comes, the, you know, he's talking about swords before. This must be it. We better go. And one of them, and we know from John that it's Peter, you know, always quick to act, quick to speak, uh, struck the servant of the high priest. And we know, I think it's from John, identifies the guy's, his name was Malchus, okay? Um, the high priest, and cut off his right ear. Only Luke records the following. But Jesus said, no more of this. Only Luke records this now. And he touched his ear and healed him. 
Now, let's just stop for a moment. I have always wondered this. So you're there. Let's say you're one of the temple guard that's come out to arrest Jesus. And you see the guy's ear cut off. And you see Jesus heal it right there. What's going through your mind? Whoa. That's not something we see every day. And you wonder, wouldn't, you have, wouldn't that have caused you pause? Should we really be arresting this guy or not? You know, we often overlook that. But again, there's really two things going on here. Notice Jesus' love and compassion, even for his enemies, right? He heals the guy. Instead of thinking ahead to what these soldiers are going to do to him and say, well, you can, just, you can just stand there with your ear cut off for all I care. No, he heals his ear, right? And um, as I say, only Luke. Uh, now, again, what was Luke's uh, occupation or vocation, we think? He was a physician, so he pays a lot of attention to these physical uh, things that take place. But two things, again, put yourself in the place of the disciples. How confusing this must be. He talked about a sword. We got two swords. Let's take a sword. Oh, no, no we shouldn't be taking a sword, right? And uh, Luke does not record the words of Judas, where Judas comes up and says, Master, and kisses him. Uh, that's recorded in the other Gospels. Uh, but at any rate, we get, we get the gist of what is happening here. And notice Luke says it was his right ear. Luke is always very precise. It wasn't the left one. It was the right one. Uh, but Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? And uh, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So in effect, what is Jesus saying? You're coming out here at night alone against me like I'm a robber? I was right in the temple in bold daylight, broad daylight. I was teaching, right? Day after day in the temple, especially during this holy week, day after day he was there teaching. And what you, in effect, he's saying you didn't, what? You didn't do anything to grab me there. And there's a reason for that. Why did the scribes and the chief priests and the elders not grab him in the temple grounds when he was teaching? The crowds, the people that were there, the people who were just hanging on his every word, and they were afraid. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders were afraid to nab him during the day. Okay? They were afraid there would be a revolt against them. Right? So they wait until this time, right? when it's nighttime, when the crowds are gone, when it's just the disciples up there, now they're bold, now they're brave, now they're going to come and take him. And unfortunately, Judas gives them every opportunity to do so. And again, let's remember who is driving the narrative, who is driving the timetable. It is Jesus. His time has come, right? Now let's go back just a moment and I'll take any comments or questions. We'll stop uh, here. We're going to miss Peter denying Jesus. But let me just say one other thing. By, by Peter taking that sword and attempting to cut off the ear of the Roman soldier, hoping that maybe there'll be a revolt and maybe Jesus and his disciples can get away, whose will is he actually doing? Yeah. Satan who wants to try to keep Jesus from going where? To the cross. Right. And so he is, you can just see, he, he doesn't know it. Again, Peter thinks he's doing the right thing here. 
let's defend Jesus. He just talked about swords. And in effect, he, if he would have been successful, and Jesus says, no, this is not the way it's going to go, Peter. This is not the way it's going to go. Okay? And we don't have the comment, but Jesus uh, elsewhere says, don't you think I could call upon legions of angels to come down and, in effect, defend me? And, of course, the answer is yes, he could, but that's not the will of the Father. It's not the will of the Father that he gets away. Okay? And really quickly, one other thing. Um, those of you that have been there again, uh, this, I mentioned this is so, such a short distance, that, and they're coming at night. So what would they be carrying? Torches, yeah. And so Jesus probably, I mean, we don't have it recorded, but certainly we would think, could have seen this party, this crowd with torches coming. And if he wanted to, could have gone over the top of the Mount of Olives and there's wilderness on the other side, could have escaped out into the wilderness by the dark of night. But he did not, right? He did not. He stayed there knowing what was going to be coming. Okay? All right. Let me uh, just at least one, and then we'll have to, to move on. Our friends at KFU won't be happy with us. Why was Peter not arrested at the same time? With all yeah. of the guards and stuff, you just cut off a guy's ear. How is it that they grabbed Jesus Good and question. Jesus and Peter? Yeah. Good question. Uh, you get the idea, or the, kind of look at it like there was chaos taking place. And they really wanted Jesus. But it's interesting, what's going to happen is Peter's going to go into this courtyard and they're going to say, you were one of them, right? Well, they could have, as you're saying, they could have nabbed them right there. And they could have nabbed all the others there as well, couldn't they? But it, it must have been that it was so chaotic at that point that the others just fled. In fact, the other gospel writers kind of say that, that the others just fled. We're going to see next week that not all of them fled because we know Peter followed at a distance into the courtyard. And the big question for next week is, who convinced the servant girl to let Peter into the courtyard? It's another of the disciples who did not, did not flee, but in fact was known to the high priest, okay? And we think that he is the one who allowed the servant, or kind of convinced this servant girl, who was the gate watcher, to let Peter into the courtyard. So that'll be our drama for the week, okay? That's a, you know, like they, for the next, the next episode on TV, they show you the little drum. That'll be, our, that'll be our bait question for next week. Who is the, the other disciple, we think? Doesn't say his name there, but we think it's pretty obvious that he actually is the one who let the, uh, convinced the servant girl to let Peter in, okay? All right, we are out of time. Let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. All right, thank you.